The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Wednesday, December 20th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Still a little uh, lingually challenged. Gotta admit that, put that out right there. Mary doesn't like when I say that. The word lingually. If someone could be a linguist, you shouldn't get all jammed up about lingualism. But okay, I got the little thing going on still. We're going to power through because I've got big news. Hey, everyone, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the Russia thing. It seems like Congress has nabbed the big fish, at least fingered the big fish, and her name is Jill Stein. Jill Freakenstein. Here's MSNBC. Two Senate committees investigating Russian interference in the 2016 election are now looking at the campaign of third-party candidate Jill Stein. Third-party candidate. That certainly elevates the Green Party, doesn't it? Don't tell the Libertarians they're the third party. The Libertarians beat her in every state. Also, don't tell Evan McMullen that Jill Stein's a third-party candidate because he beat her in eight of the 11 states where he was on the ballot. But why is third party, and by the way, woohoo, looks like we made it, the third party. Why is third party candidate Jill Stein in the crosshairs of Democratic investigators in this Russia thing? Back to MSNBC. Jill Stein has been a regular fixture on, on Russia's state-owned RT propaganda network, and she even attended that uh, gala in December 2015, that dinner in Moscow hosted by RT that was attended by Mike Flynn, where they sat together at dinner with Vladimir Putin. And afterwards, she filmed a video in Red Square where she denounced American, ex- American exceptionalism. Wait a minute. I think American exceptionalism is a dumb concept. And if Jill Stein gets in trouble for going on RT, well, Jill Stein also went on the gist. And if Jill Stein sat down for dinner with Vladimir Putin, I sat down at a diner with Jill Stein. I mean, that's where she was having her press conference. Yeah, diner, good place for a uh, Green Party press conference. Adam and Eve on a raft. Wreck them. Oh, man. All this means is that I'm beginning to think I might be in the crosshairs of the Russia probe. I was only talking about adoptions, like adopting a probiotic diet, adopting a strange slurring speech pattern, adopting a highway. Look, Jill Stein has some beliefs that I find unusual, others that I find stupid. Her assertion that there's not much of a difference between Trump and Hillary Clinton Well, to my credit, it doesn't seem laughable in retrospect. It certainly seemed laughable at the time. I think I laughed when she told it to me in our interview. They have the same agenda. And right now we see in this election the fusion of the Democratic and Republican parties. Just have to have just a little bit of knowledge to know that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump weren't the same person. But you know what? She's knowledgeable. We talked a lot about Russia and her points were legitimate. Totally disagreed with them. Also, she totally called out Putin in a way that was much more forceful and grounded in reality than Donald Trump ever has. Look, if she is on someone's payroll, we definitely should know about it. Russian hackers did support her. But, you know, I talked about this with Clint Watts. They were also going after Bernie backers really hard. They were trying to sow discord. And you do that through lefty candidates and also righty candidates. And if I were Jill Stein, I don't know that I would turn down the RT interviews. I mean, she needs to get her message out. RT does have viewers. It's a luxury to only say yes to CNN, MSNBC, and the networks. But when CNN, MSNBC, and the networks aren't calling, well, RT's there. 
They are on most of the cable systems and all of the internets. As far as attending a dinner with Vladimir Putin, poor form, I say, but it's not ipso facto proof that you're on the take or in the bag. If you are, I definitely want to know. I'd not have accepted a dinner invitation with Putin, but then again, I'm not Jill Stein, though I did lose to her by only 3,031 votes in the Mississippi. On the show today, I talk about an issue that was a key talking point when it was time to get votes in an election, but never came up when it was time to actually vote on the tax bill. But first, about the cost and consequence of that tax bill. Here's my interview with David Leonhardt of the New York Times. David Leonhardt is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times, and he also sends out an indispensable newsletter every day where he kind of summarizes what he's been thinking about, what some other smart people are thinking about. And if you're like me, you read it uh, for the deep text, like a, a Reddit user who watches Game of Thrones, and you try to figure out which fellow columns and op-ed pieces he likes and which ones he doesn't care for. I don't know if that's proper or that's what he means to do, but that's how I use that email uh, newsletter. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Mike. I am good. Thank you. Am I right to pick up the scent of, "Eh, I don't really agree with this guy's point, but he's on the op-ed page, so I'll give him a shout out. I am happy to have anyone reading it intensely, both uh, reading the text and the subtext. Okay, so this tax bill that has just passed, uh, there are a number of things that are detrimental, I believe, to policy. The process of it wasn't good. It was also sold to us by lying in general. Oh, yes. And then there's the um, backdoor way of taking health care for several million people, maybe 13 million. We could debate that. So of all the aspects of the tax bill that you think are uh, the worst and the things that we should be most upset about, can you rank them or can you give me a sense of what bothers you most about it? Yeah, and sadly, there is a lot to choose from, as as you just enumerated. So I guess I might say number one is the way in which this violated good democratic, small d, democratic process and lawmaking. When we're going to pass a law that is going to have a huge effect on the country and the economy, we should have hearings where people can debate the law. We should ask experts, like the experts Congress employs and the experts at research groups across Washington and elsewhere, what this bill is going to do. And then our members shouldn't lie about what those analyses say. Um, (laughs) and, And in this case, this was a hastily put together bill. There were few to no hearings. It was entirely different from the kind of hearings we had for Obamacare, for the Reagan tax cut, you name it. And we had a huge number of falsehoods. So I would put that number one. And then I would put number two, the way in which this bill exacerbates income inequality, which is already um, arguably the biggest problem this country has. The frustrating thing is, it seems to me that there is a way for a non-radical Republican, a Jeff Flake, maybe even a John Cornyn, I don't know, maybe I'm giving the guy too much credit because he looks like he could uh, be the longtime beloved host of a local TV newscast. Anyway, there is a way to have gotten almost all of what they wanted, like a big cut in the corporate tax and a cut in everyone's tax, and just 
do it better for the middle class. The fact that they're going back to nail down the details just shows me how sloppy this was and maybe how venal and cynical it was. I mean, if they really cared about, uh, you know, the people that Marco Rubio says he cares about, and, and I think he does, he actually did something to help those people. If they really cared, they could have, and they just didn't. I think that the thing to remember is that the people running Congress deeply, deeply believe in cutting taxes on rich people. They believe it from both a theoretical standpoint, that they just think people should be allowed to keep the money that they make, and they believe it because many of them are themselves rich and they will benefit, and they believe it because the people they're surrounded by, their donors, their political supporters, are affluent as well. And so the fact that this bill chose to shower the vast majority of its money on the rich is not an accident, and they were not willing to take that money and uh, spend it on the middle class. That was a deliberate decision. I'd like to think it was unwise politically. Do you think it was? If you look at polls, it certainly looks as if it was unwise politically. This is a shockingly unpopular bill. Its approval rating in many polls is even lower than President Trump's approval rating, which means it isn't holding on to his supporters. It's not adding Democrats. I mean, the fact that no Democrats, even in Trump-won states, felt any pressure to vote for this bill is quite striking. Usually, tax cuts are something that at least some Democrats decide they have to support. That's what happened when George W. Bush had tax cuts. And so I think the most likely case is, yes, this was a politically damaging bill. We don't know for sure. It is true that in the short term, it cuts taxes somewhat on the middle class. And so there's a chance that it turns around. But I think the more likely case is people's initial impressions, which, by the way, are accurate, that this is a bill designed to help the rich, um, are going to stick, and that this bill is going to end up being politically damaging for Republicans. Well, what might happen is what will happen is Republicans will lose seats. And then I guess if they lose enough seats so that the House flips, I don't, I don't know that that's a likelihood, uh, we'll go back and say this was one of the reasons. If they lose enough seats so the House doesn't flip, we'll say something like they took took their shot when they had it, and they survived by the skin of their teeth. And the other thing we should factor into is it's not just the question of is it politically damaging. It's the question of is it more politically damaging than, not, than having a bill that failed or not having done anything, because I think that would have been disastrous. I agree. Um, not passing a bill here would, would not only have made them look incompetent in the eyes of swing voters, but it would have led to all kinds of terrible fights within the Republican Party. Their donors would have been absolutely furious. And look, as one Democratic operative said to me once they got far along in this tax bill, he said, on the substance, I really hope this bill fails. On the politics, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't at this point. Mm-hmm. So do it. So right. So they're thinking, just do it because, A, this is what we believe in. And B, in a year and a half, we might not be able to do it. That's right. I don't think there's anything wrong with political parties deciding we're willing to pass stuff we deeply believe in, even if it costs us some seats. Um, What I lament is that what this Republican Party believes in, I think, is bad for the country. And they weren't even willing to be honest about what they believed in. They rushed this process. They didn't tell the truth about what was in the bill. Uh, If they want to come out and say, look, we believe in, in cutting taxes, even though it increases the deficit, and we believe that we should be cutting taxes for the affluent more than anyone else, because we think that's fair, that to me would be much more defensible than doing one thing and saying you're doing another. You know, that argument about rushing the bill and doing it uh, even differently than Obama did Obamacare, I believe it. I've read a lot about it. 
I do not think that there is one Republican in America who would listen to that and say, oh, yeah, that's a good argument that doesn't also apply to the other side. I agree. People don't vote on process. And so one of the things that's really alarming about the Trump administration and also Republican, current Republican leaders in Congress is that we depend on our leaders to uphold certain norms, right? That they're not going to go out and just straight out lie about what's in their bill. It doesn't mean that they're going to pay a big political price for doing so. And and that's what's so worrisome about this, that, that they've done a bunch of um, things here that I think they may pay a political price for, but they've also done a bunch of damaging stuff that I absolutely agree with you, they are not going to pay a political price for. Okay, so it seems to me that there is a chance for us to pull back from the uh, norms that Trump is destroying, and that chance is that Trump doesn't get elected or gets impeached or somehow falls on his face and it doesn't work out. But it similarly seems to me that the uh, train has left the station on all the other norms we're talking about. Those norms have proved to be an effective way to govern. Put it simply, maybe the norms that Trump threatens It's going to turn out that that was ineffective to threaten those norms, but the norms that McConnell and congressional Republicans have destroyed, it worked out for them. It did work out for them. And I don't know exactly how we put things back together. I mean, so here's a really good example. Trump fired the FBI director because he didn't like him, and it seems because he wanted to obstruct an an investigation. In the past, FBI directors were allowed to serve across partisan presidents. So imagine you're a Democrat, and you're elected while Trump's FBI director is still in. What do you do? Do you try to keep, uh, do you try to return us to the world in which presidents don't just replace the FBI director? Or do you say, look, this person was essentially appointed illegitimately, and so I'm going to put my own person in there? It's, there's no obvious answer. I mean, what I would be very tempted to do if I were in a new administration is look for some third way. Essentially say, look, Trump appointed an FBI director when he should have left the old one in there. I'm going to put together a commission of both Republicans and Democrats, and I'm going to ask them to give me three nominees, three choices, and I commit now to, to choosing one of them. And I'm hoping to get us back to this world in which not everything is just a partisan thing. It's hard, though. Yeah, there's a way to do it. And there are plenty of congressmen and senators like the bipartisan caucus and just, you know, people who aren't in that caucus because it's not part of their beliefs, but who are really ethical and try to do things the right way. Sometimes we think that this is impossible. I think that there are plenty of people within government who uh, can be our saviors. Yep. Uh, the Supreme Court's another example. I mean, right now, clearly, the Republicans, if there's another opening, the Republicans can just fill it because they have both the White House and the Senate. But what if the Democrats somehow retake the Senate uh, in 2018? And then what if a Supreme Court justice retires in 2019? I would argue that the Democrats can't just um, say that this is a one-sided battle. I would argue they have to say, we're not going to fill the seat. And after this, we're happy to come together and essentially call a truce after we've each flipped one seat. But we're not letting you be the party that flips the seats when you have the Senate and, and we're the party that, that does the good government stuff when we have the Senate. I want to ask you a specific question about Mueller and then a general question. A lot of people are saying that if uh, Trump fires Mueller, it will, of course, be a terrible thing for the process and democracy. And they're really, they're really worried about that prospect. On the other hand, it could be the overreach or the misstep that brings them down. Uh, and it's it's important to bring him down because he really represents a huge threat to America and the world. So what do you think? Do you think that if he if he were to take that step, would it hurt him more than it would hurt all of us? I think that depends hugely on congressional Republicans. 
for Trump to fire Mueller would be an assault on the rule of law. It would be assault on our entire democratic system. It would be Trump trying to say, I, as the president, am above the law. Um, you cannot investigate things that I and, and my aides have done. It would then fall to um, his own party, the party that currently controls Congress, to draw a line and say, no, this is a nation of laws. You must reappoint another independent head of this investigation. And until that happens, we will do nothing. In fact, we will start our own more serious investigations. Um, we will not do the basic functionings of government, like passing budgets. Um, this is absolutely intolerable. I don't know whether Republicans will do that. I am frightened about it as well. I do think it's possible that firing Mueller would bring down Trump, but I'm still really rooting hard against him firing Mueller because I don't want to see what that looks like. I instead want to live in a country where no one is above the rule of law. How do citizens make clear to Republicans that this wouldn't be acceptable? I think one of the things we learned during the battle to prevent a health care bill that would have taken health insurance from many millions of people earlier this year is that um, political activism can work, that um, calling your representatives of Congress, as small as it seems, is actually a worthwhile thing for people to do. And then I think that if Trump actually does fire Mueller, I think we're then in a situation in which it calls for a level of citizen activism that is different from anything that we've seen. I think it calls for marches. I think it calls for phone calls. I think it calls for really a mass display, a mass small-D Democratic display um, in which people say, this is a nation of laws, and you cannot, because you are the president, break the law and think that you can just overpower any investigation of you. And this is my last question. Of all the ways that a Trump presidency could end, and it could just end after eight years with him riding high in the polls, but... Let's, there are other possibilities, which is him losing an election, which is him um, somehow self-immolating, which is Mueller bringing charges and there being an impeachment. Is one better for democracy? I think uh, the best outcome for democracy would be a large repudiation of President Trump at the polls in 2020. The only asterisk I would put on that is that if, in fact, he engaged in behavior that is bad and uh, likely illegal in the Russia investigation, and there is as yet no evidence that he did things during the campaign that would rise to that level, then I would say, yes, then impeachment um, really needs to be on the table and considered. But lacking more information, I would say the best Democratic outcome is a strong repudiation of him at the polls three years from now. Right. So you're saying if there were a chance for Mueller to bring a prosecution on, I don't know, a Logan Act violation or something that is less than A, a huge slam dunk and B, a a shot right at the heart of democracy. If Mueller, if that were the choice, that Mueller possibly could bring a prosecution on one of those one of those issues, you'd rather see a repudiation at the polls. To, to you, democracy would be better served by that. I will confess to being torn, even as you and I are talking about this issue. <laughs> On the one hand, I think impeachment is not good for a country. And so in that way, I would rather see this presidency, which I believe is hurting the country, resolved in the voting booth. On the other hand, I think there's a very serious argument to be made that President Trump has already behaved in ways that justify impeachment. Firing Jim Comey really looks like obstruction of justice. Um, If you look at the 
ways in which he is personally profiting off of the presidency. Those are legitimate grounds for impeachment. So I'm torn. There's a part of me that would like to fast forward to 2020 and be able to have a referendum on what he's doing. And there's a part of me that says, you know what? His behavior is worthy of serious talk of impeachment. And he is, he is sufficiently erratic that he is not someone that we should have in charge of the nuclear arsenal. And it would be better not to wait three years. And if that sounds wishy-washy, it accurately describes my thinking on this issue. Well, listen, until that time that any of this happens, uh, keep counting the lies and charting them. Thank you. David Leonhardt's an op-ed columnist and the associate editorial page editor at the New York Times, 2011 Pulitzer. Let's throw that in there because he won it and deserved it. Thank you, David. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Whatever happened to income inequality? The answer is it got worse. And under the tax bill, it's going to get much worse. But no one or no one who voted for the tax bill seems to care. I got to say, income inequality is not the best phrase. It's not even the best way to think about what's really ailing us economically. It isn't a measure. It's a measure relative to other measures. Measuring economic health by income inequality, it's a little like saying, let's have a speeding law that says you can't go 15% above the average speed being driven on a thoroughfare. It's much better just to say, don't go 65 miles an hour or above. But if you say the economy stinks, it's not quite right. The economy doesn't stink. The economy's okay. It's just that who gets the benefits of that okayness is not fairly distributed, however you want to define fairly distributed. And that phrase, that whole thing I said, is certainly a lot clunkier than just saying income inequality. Here is the nub of the problem, I think. And it's not income inequality, but it's also not a phrase. It's a fact. This is Yasha Munk here on the Estimable Rational Security Podcast. The reason all along why a lot of people believed in democracy has been that it delivered for them. Take economics, right? From 1945 to 1960, the living standard of the average American doubled. From 1960 to 1985, it doubled. Since 1985, it's been flat. Republicans can get behind that diagnosis that the standard of living is not going up for enough people. And they think we should raise the standard of living. They really do. They should raise it for the rich, for the middle class and the poor probably in that order, if they were given sodium pentothal. But eventually they'll get there. And you know what? The strange thing is, or at least the notable thing, is that it's not like Republicans have been totally running away from the concept of income inequality or from acknowledging the ills of income inequality. Take the last presidential election. In just one debate... There was, first, a question about income inequality. Governor Huckabee, you have railed against income inequality. You've said that some Wall Street executives should have gone to jail over the roles that they played during the financial crisis. Apart from your tax plan... And Rand Paul talked about it. I think we should examine how the Fed has really been part of the problem. You want to study income inequality? Let's bring the Fed board and talk about Fed policy and how it causes income inequality. John Kasich did too. I want to go back for a second, though, to this issue of income inequality. My program would, would move the 104 programs of the Federal Department of Education into four block grants and send them back to the states because income inequality is driven by a lack of skills when kids don't get what they need to be able to compete and win in this country. 
Those aren't the only examples of Republicans acknowledging income inequality during the debate. And it wasn't just using the phrase, but really talking about the underlying problem. Jeb Bush talked about it. Ted Cruz talked about at least issues adjacent to income inequality. Marco Rubio talked about it. By the way, Marco Rubio acted on it in insisting on some more tax breaks for families during the negotiation of this bill. It wasn't much. And he did vote for a package that will exacerbate income inequality. But you know what? He did more than literally every other Republican senator other than Mike Lee. Income inequality is, like I said, a loaded phrase and not exactly the problem. But whatever the best definition of the problem is, this bill makes it worse. And if you don't acknowledge it, you're not solving our problems. It's the same with global warming. Things are trending badly. Trying to attack the issue might not totally work. It might totally fail. But ignoring it will definitely fail. The tax bill is another example of the lack of community action to solve a societal problem. I guess it shows that Republicans were only paying lip service to the idea that it's really a problem. I mean, they're politicians. They sense the mood. I did come away with the idea that there was a change even among Republicans about what's really going on in this country. And that change included acknowledging that some parts of the whole idea of income inequality is at the root of what was wrong. But then they passed this tax bill, almost unanimously, unanimously in the Senate, that's going to make this acknowledged ill that much worse. It's frustrating. And my final analysis, political analysis, is this. It's how income inequality is like global warming, which I was talking about before. The dysfunction with our political process is we've created the wrong cleavage between the parties. What we should be doing is debating. There's going to always be a debate. There should be a debate. But what we should be doing is debating the tactics to stop this problem. A good example of that is terrorism. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, etc. Republicans and Democrats agree that there is a problem. The debate is what's the proper way to address the problem. But on climate change, the debate isn't where the solutions should be targeted. The debate is if it's really a problem at all. And this tax bill tells us the exact same thing is going on with income inequality. Life being good for the top and increasingly rotten for everyone else. One party simply denies that is the case. They might talk a different game. They might not overtly deny the premise when asked about it directly. They do that with climate change. But the votes of the Republicans and the policies of the Republicans tell us what they really think. It is a sellout of most of their countrymen, most of their voters, and it's a missed opportunity. It's simply an exacerbation of something that's really wrong. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Biennemay, who wants Evan McMullen investigated for texting nasty, nasty things about Donald Trump to his lover. Gist producer Mary Wilson wants libertarian vice presidential candidate William Weld investigated for texting worried thoughts about his own running mate, Gary Johnson, to Evan McMullen's lover. Steve Lickta, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, wants Martin O'Malley to be investigated. No, wait. That was actually a Martin O'Malley bot tweeting as Steve Lichtai demanding an investigation into Martin O'Malley. The guy just is desperate to stay in the news. The gist. I want Mueller investigated for not pronouncing his name Mueller. I want Koo investigated for not pronouncing his name Coop. And I want Jesse Waters investigated for 
sliding into Ivanka Trump's DMs. You, I think he's a cat person. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.